Welcome everyone to episode 67 of the 25 Live. My name is Jim Bernica. My special guest this week is the Central York Fire Services uh, Acting Platoon Chief, Rob Lethan. So uh, Central York Fire Services, just a little bit north of Toronto. This episode is all about Rob's journey with behavioral health, some of the issues he went through, and now how he pays it forward and and talks about it and therefore kind of breaks the wall down. So without further ado, let's just bring Rob in. All right, welcome everyone to this week's episode of the 25 Live. My special guest this week, Rob Lethan. How are you doing, Rob? I'm doing pretty good. Thanks for uh, having me on. Absolutely. Uh, looking, forward, looking forward to having a good uh, good conversation today. All right, you got high hopes. Let's, let's see how they pan out. <laughs> All right, well, let's start off. Where are you at right now? Um, I'm um, in Ontario, Canada. Uh, I work for a department just north of Toronto. We're a, uh, it's a department called Central York Fire Services. So, you know, in, in our neck of the world, it's a medium-sized department. You know, we've got uh, seven crews uh, staffed. Um, we're a career department, uh, four stations working our fifth. Uh, we have, we just did another hiring. So we're roughly about 150, 160 members. So not not a small department, not a big corporate department, you know, like you'd see Toronto and Hamilton no, and Ottawa, but the they, big departments. You're big enough to take care of most of your own stuff yourself and not have to rely on anybody yep. else coming in for the most part, right? For the most part, yeah. We, we, uh, we still do make use of mutual aid. Um, if we have a significant fire and we're sending all of our on-duty crews to that fire, we, we, we make use of mutual aid from surrounding departments to backfill and to support. So, yeah, you know what? We're, uh, we're getting to the point now where we could, we're close to being able to handle two, you know, room fires at the same time. Right? So we're getting there. You know, we'll put it this way: we're we're just at the point now where where there's enough guys where you don't necessarily know everybody's name. <laughs> okay, yeah, like you said, a, a medium-sized apartment. You you said it right yeah. away. Yeah. So like right. I said, I, I've been in the fire service uh, 28 years now. I had uh, started out as a volunteer, like a lot of us have. Uh, in my local municipality where I live, got was as a volunteer there for two and a half years. Got hired full time into a uh, to the original fire department known as New Market Fire. Uh, they have met, eventually willingly amalgamated with Aurora Fire, and that created Central York Fire Services. Uh, we're basically right in the middle of York Region, which is just is the region just north of Toronto, Ontario. Um, when I started out with Newmarket, I uh, started out in dispatch. So the first two and a half years of uh, my fire service career was a uh, full-time career was in dispatch. And at that time, it was a one-person show <laughs> in dispatch. And we, uh, we also dispatched one, two, three, four other departments. Um, we would answer all 911 cell phone calls for fire were, were routed to our dispatch center. 
Um, that was a conscious decision uh, by the, the fire chiefs of the region at the time uh, when 911 came into, into play or into being and they had to pick one dispatch center to send 911 cell phone calls to in York region and they picked our department. So that was, uh, that was the start, you know, and then got out on the floor with a crew and uh, we went, you know, from one station to two stations with Newmarket, and, and um, I knew I didn't want to be, you know, just a firefighter for my career. So when I was eligible to write for my acting captain's exam, I wrote, became an acting captain. A um, couple of years after that, uh, Newmarket Fire and Aurora Fire amalgamated, became Central York Fire Services, and they, that was back in. 2001 in 2002 I think it was it's a long time I'm getting old yeah <laughs> um I was promoted to captain and then uh I, I in my department uh when I was eligible I, I wrote to become an acting platoon chief uh now in my department acting platoon chiefs are real it's not a permanent rank you're an acting platoon chief for the period of time that you're actually acting. Um, so in my case, so my department's organized, you know, as firefighters, officers, captains, platoon chief, and then we're right into the deputy chief and so on. So I was, I've been an acting platoon chief for going on seven years now. So that that's my, my well, fire service <laughs> resume. Um, now as my mental health resume, <laughs> um, I realized in 2019 in February that, yeah, I needed help. Um, sat down with my wife and, uh, and we, we talked about it and I said, yeah, you know what? <laughs> There's just a lot of things that I, I really can't explain. And, and all those things I couldn't explain were all the, the, the typical symptoms of PTSD. So I, I talked to my wife and said, yeah, I need, I need help. <laughs> so I uh, was able to talk with somebody on the department peer support team who I felt comfortable enough talking to. And uh, he gave me the contact information for a place just north of where I work called the Trauma Center. It's actually, it's an incredible place. The, uh, it's an old century home it's been renovated into a place of healing. That's the, it, it's, it's a, for me, it's a sanctuary. It's, it's a safe place. They got beautiful gardens, a pond area. They've got a mindfulness labyrinth that you can walk. You, you, you walk into the place for a therapy session. And like I said, it's, it's an old century home that's been refurbished. And all of the therapists that work there are, are absolutely incredible. So I started uh, back in February of last year, started uh, uh, weekly therapy with a trauma trained therapist. And I just lucked out that she also specializes in treating first responders with PTSD and depression. And uh, you know, I eventually got to a point where I was, at that time I was still at work, still running calls. Um, and I got to a point where I realized yeah, I can't, can't get better, can't heal in the same environment I got sick. And, and I had some really 
quirky physical symptoms as well that, that really only ever happened at work, right? So it, it was strange, you know, we, we'd finish a shift or we'd finish the day part of the 24 hour shift and, you know, you know, evening, you know, things settled down a bit and you'd eventually go to the dorm or the captain's office where, where my sleeping area was. And it was funny, you know, by the end, you know, but getting ready for bed and I, you know, dropped my pants and, and my legs were completely red. It, it, like you look at them and they looked like they were sunburned, but it was only my legs. And it was only ever happening when I was at work. So that that's that was like one of those, oh, okay, that's really quirky. I maybe need to go see the doctor. Went to my family doctor, talked to her about the quirky symptoms, what was going on, you know, talked to her that said to her that, yeah, you know, I mean, I'm in therapy for what is probably PTSD, <laughs> filled out a couple of, uh, you know, diagnostic questionnaires and she gave me a note to be off work. I was originally going to see her to get a note to be off work for a couple of weeks because I figured, you know, that's all I really need. But it, it, it really was a bitter pill to swallow for me when the note said off work until further notice. Right? And I mean, as your listeners, all of us first responders as firefighters, we love what we do. <laughs> Right. It's the best job in the world. But when somebody like your doctor is saying, yeah, it may be the best job in the world, but you're going to not be doing it for a little while. It, you know, it, it's it's a hard, hard thing to accept. <laughs> so I ended up going off work uh, in April. I've been off work since. So, um, yeah, it, it's it's been a challenge. Um, I had um, up here. Uh, we have what's called WSIB or Workplace Safety Insurance Board. It'd be equivalent to Workman's Comp or WC, WCB in some of the other areas of both our countries. And, and, sure. and I put a, uh, a claim in for an occupational stress injury and it was approved. Um, I was fortunate that it was approved because in Ontario, we have what's called presumptive legislation for first responders with PTSD that basically says, if you're a one of these listed first responders and you're diagnosed with PTSD by a psychologist or psychiatrist, then it's presumed to be because of your profession and your claim is automatically approved, which was nice. <laughs> I mean, there's nothing worse than, you know, battling PTSD, anxiety and depression, than also battling your employer and or the insurance company. So yeah, my claim was approved. I, uh, they, uh, my therapist was, was a great advocate for me. And, um, let me step back. Like a lot of people, a lot of first responders who deal with insurance companies, they're not really your friend, <laughs> the insurance companies. And, and uh, so there's a lot of anxiety around that. And, and I really didn't want to be sent to a, a psychologist or psychiatrist that's working on behalf of the insurance company. You kind of say a, a distrust. Uh, big time. Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, I was fortunate enough that my, my therapist actually contacted my case manager and said, yeah, Rob wants to be his assessment to be done by this specific person. And I did some research 
and there's a psychologist up this way called Dr. Hannah Rockman. And she is for the last two and a half decades worked with nothing but the military, veterans and first responders. So I thought, who better to do an assessment than somebody who understands first responders, understands military and in my case, WSIB agreed and approved that expense. Did all the assessments. It was like a four and a half hour assessment. Not fun, <laughs> not easy. Lots of, uh, lots of emotional breakdowns while I'm trying to describe things. And I had to talk about some of my problematic incidents. Um, got diagnosed uh, a week later um in a therapy session my, my therapist said well we got your diagnosis here it is and she said at the time that you know my diagnosis was severe ptsd and i, and I thought to myself no shit <laughs> tell me something i don't already know but she also said yeah your diagnosis result was also severe major depressive disorder now that that one actually really really threw me for a loop because I thought, I'm not depressed. <laughs> I thought to myself, you know what? I'm not always bawling my eyes out. I can get out of bed. I'm not sad all the time. I, holy crap, you know, I've got a good sense of humor. How can I be depressed? Well, you know what? The reality is what I thought depression looked like really wasn't what it was really like. And the example I give people when who ask is, Look at the comedian, Robin Williams. One of the funniest comedians around. You never knew he was depressed, did you? No. <laughs> so yeah, I, I got diagnosed with severe PTSD, severe depression, and uh, uh, I had a lot of uh, OCD tendencies as well. Just not quite enough to be clinically diagnosed with OCD. So yeah, that was... Um, second or third week of June of 2019 that I actually got my formal diagnosis. Um, the challenge I ran into is early, early on in, in my, my mental health journey in what would be called the acute phase, you know, after the, the, the cup, you know, your stress cup overflows or, or the, the nice bubble breaks and, and the acute phase of, of everything. Um, there was one particular day where, you know what, I was incredibly overwhelmed, feeling hopeless, helpless, desperate to escape emotional pain, still had no idea what, you know, my triggers were, my symptoms were all over the place. Life was still a complete mess and falling apart. And there was one day where, you know, after a, uh, a fight with my spouse over something so minor that of course I started you know what I, I went for a nice little five-hour drive and I made a decision what I thought was the only way to get to escape all that pain the more and and I made my choice about suicide so I, I came home looked in the medicine cabinet to see what we had fortunately we didn't have enough of anything significant that would have done what I wanted to accomplish uh, and at that point it was like okay I'm tired as heck it, it takes a lot out of you uh, it takes a lot of energy out of you 
dealing with PTSD. So I was spent. It was, you know, it was what, 5.30, 6 o'clock. So it's like, okay, grab some dinner and I would just want to go to bed. Just got to, you know, sleep. Figured, okay, tomorrow I'll wake up. I'll start coming up with, you know, what my plan was, an actual planned attempt. And uh, during the next couple of days, I thought a lot about a friend, a platoon mate. Um, he was on my crew for the beginning of his career for a little bit. And uh, yeah, he died by suicide in 2018. And I thought a lot about him during those couple of days. And, you know, I thought a lot about what his funeral was like. And you know what firefighter funerals are like. They tend to be very well attended. His was really well attended. Like the, the church was, was filled. You know, the, the typical firefighter funeral that for a firefighter not killed in the line of duty, you know, had a couple of aerials up there, you know, the big flag. And, you know, we probably had, probably had 200 uniformed personnel there and lots of, lots of civilians. And, and, and I remember the funeral, amazing funeral, but I remember there was just something hanging over the funeral and what that that something was was stigma right like like i mean we we've we've chatted we talked a little bit about stigma you know or stigma around mental health yeah it exists we're slowly chipping away at it but the stigma around suicide is 10 times worse and i thought a lot about that stigma i thought a lot about my, my platoon mates uh wife and his young son that were we're going to have to live with that stigma for the rest of their lives. And uh, I thought a lot about that. And I thought, you know what, that's not something I want my wife and my, my two kids to have to live with and be burdened with for the rest of their lives. And that's what actually helped me step back from the edge. All right. Now, having said that, <laughs> when we talk about stigma, I mean, I, I had no problem going public with my PTSD battles. Right, I you know I absolutely had no problem with that, but I wasn't open and honest about my suicide thoughts for almost four and a half months. It wasn't until October of 2019 that I actually opened up and was honest with my wife and my therapist. Right, and and the, a big part of that was because of the stigma surrounding suicide. It is, it is that strong. It, you know, it, it steals your voice. It's like a gag. It, it just makes it so hard to reach out. And so if, if I, go, sorry, ahead, go ahead, I was just going to say it's when you finally did talk to your wife, and you ended up talking to one of your fellow, you know, your peer supporters. It's kind of like you were just sticking your toe in the water. I'm just trying yeah. this out. But you weren't going to jump in, not until October at this point, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know what? Like you said, it was, I was completely open with everybody publicly about my PTSD and depression diagnosis and those battles. But there was still that one little part of my journey that I kept 
buried and quiet for, like you said, until October. And, and to be honest with you, when, when I finally was open and honest with my wife and my therapist, it was like an incredible weight lifted off my shoulders. Uh, and I think that was the point in my journey when the healing really started to happen. Right? It, it, it's absolutely incredible how much energy it takes out of you to keep things quiet and keep things hidden. And, and I realized that early on in my journey. And that's why I, I went public with my PTSD battles. And, and it really was, that was incredible. I thought to myself then, you know what? This has taken so much energy out of me, just keeping things hidden on the down low, that that's energy I could use for healing. And that's why I went public. And that's where, where you know, I, I came up with my, my mantra about silence does nothing but strength and stigma. But <laughs> the silence that surrounds suicide and the stigma that surrounds suicide is so much, so much stronger than in the stigma around mental health. I, I, I mean, I talk to a lot of people and, and there's so many first responders who have dealt with thoughts of suicide and, and attempts and they won't even use the word suicide. They'll talk about the dark times or the dark place. And, and I'm of the firm belief, no, you know what? I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I'm not going to beat around the bush. I'm actually going to use the word suicide because that's what it was. And, and when you choose to be open about it and actually use the word and talk about it openly and publicly, you take the power away from that word. And that also helps chip away at that stigma. So, yes, so that's, that's when I, I really think my healing really started. Before and we that, get into your healing and your whole sure. recovery process, just a question. It's the same question, but it's for the two different periods. Sure. What gave you the strength to initially open up to your wife back in February and then same question about the suicide okay. later on in October, because both those discussing both those, I mean, those that's courageous on your end for sure. Yeah. Um, I'll be honest with you with respect to opening up about June 2nd of 2019 and my thoughts of suicide and my, you know, what I almost did. That was even harder than the actual decision itself. So literally, that was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. So to, so to step back, um, what made me, what gave me the courage to reach out back in February? Um, so a little bit of the backstory. I, I uh, back in November of 2018, uh, my deputy chief sent a, a memo out, and and I'll be blunt, it was a stupid memo, <laughs> and, and you know what, not a lot of thought put into it, and I may have perhaps lost it on him. <laughs> um, I may have perhaps sent some really well-worded emails, 
Um, I may have, uh, I may have maybe made some decisions and stepped down from things uh, that the department had spent a lot of money training me on doing. And, and I was angry and okay, no big deal. I, I dealt with that, but that anger and that uh, I was still there in December and that anger was still there in January. And it's like, I couldn't let go of it. I just absolutely couldn't let go of it. And I said to myself, that's not normal. There's with, with that's not normal, not being able to let go of something that's truthfully, there was a memo. <laughs> something is inconsequential as a memo and I can't lose, let go of it. And then I looked at that and I looked at the marriage problems I was having, you know, the fights my wife would get into. I looked and thought, yeah, you know what? I'm angry all the time with everybody and everything, including myself. And just, there were just so many things that weren't, in my eyes, normal uh, that made me realize, yeah, I need to get some help. So that's what sort of drove me to, or motivated me, <laughs> motivated me to reach out for help back in February. So yeah, that, that, that's what drove me to reach out. Now, one of my mistakes in my journey, and I've made a lot of mistakes. <laughs> I've had some good things, but I've made some bad choices and, and made some mistakes as well. And one of those mistakes was June 2nd. And when I had those thoughts of suicide and coming home and looking in the medicine cabinet, I didn't reach out for help when I should have. At that point, it sh I should have reached out to somebody, but I didn't. And again, that was because of the stigma surrounding suicide. So what actually helped me make that final decision to be open and honest about it? I, uh, I attended a a conference in 2019 up here called Invisible Wounds Conference for First Responders. And I went there and, you know, there's a lot of first responders, police, fire, uh, paramedics. Um, a lot of them tended to be peer support people, not necessarily first responders battling PTSD, anxiety and depression. And, and one of the guest speakers was a, uh, was a police officer from I think Waterloo, I think he was from. And I happened to have a chance to talk to him afterwards. And a little conversation and, and he talked about his dark times. <laughs> and, and one of the things he said to me was that, you know what, in your mental health journey, you gotta be open, honest, and you gotta be honest with yourself as well. And that, that, that brief, you know, six minute conversation with him really sunk home. And I realized that, yeah, you know what? I gotta be honest with myself. Gotta be honest with my therapist. I gotta be honest with my wife. And that's what made me finally open up about the June 2nd and the and suicide. So, and you know what? It's It's been, uh, it's been a journey since then. <laughs> um, I'm, like I said, I'm, I'm still in weekly therapy. 
still dealing with problematic calls. Um, I, I've um, I've done a couple handful of things that that really I think have helped me in my journey. Um, one of the things I've done was uh, you know having complete trust and blind faith in my therapist. Um, one of the things that that for your for your listeners who who don't necessarily know that much about PTSD, anxiety, and oppression, especially PTSD, is is one of the problematic areas is trust. You know, we you know when you're battling PTSD and and you tend not to trust people, right? Anybody, and sometimes not even yourself. So trust is a is a big hurdle to get over with, with to allow you to move on in, in your in your in your journey and and I made the conscious choice to completely trust my therapist um, I tell people she next to my wife and my daughter she's the next third most important woman in my life right I mean she's helping me get my life back in order <laughs> and uh, and you know what being a typical first responder, we're problem solvers. We tend to be control freaks, type A, extreme personalities. And it's hard when there's this process that's going to go on with you that you don't know about, that you don't understand, that you don't have complete control over, which is a therapy process. And I made the conscious choice to, to have blind faith that whatever that therapy process was going to be, was going to help. Let's actually talk about some of that, the therapy okay. process, the recovery process, because you kind of did all sorts of different things. Uh, some typical, yep. some atypical. Yeah, ab absolutely. The, the, um, one of the things that I chose to do as well was to complete, be completely open-minded about anything and everything that could potentially help. You know, and I figured be open-minded, try it. If it works, great, keep it. If it doesn't work, pitch it, move on to the next thing. So in addition to all the, the, the standard treatment modalities that psychotherapists and psychologists and, and you know, psychiatrists use, things like CB, CBT, CPT, acceptance commitment therapy, uh, EMDR, all those standard um, therapy modalities that, that, that mental health professionals use. I also, I also did things like, you know, I tried coloring, you know, I was never really good at the coloring. You know, I didn't had adult coloring books, but unfortunately every time I would go outside of the lines, you know, the OCD part of me would really kick in and, you know, I'd beat myself up. And so coloring, I tried, didn't work for me. Now, having said that, that coloring sort of evolved into doing artwork, digital artwork. So um, I, I got into doing, you know, realistic digital art that helps educate about mental health and some of the you know aspects of mental health and things like stigma and, and flashbacks. Um, and you know, I, I it's some powerful stuff. Um, um, you know, just you looking know over the stuff, it, it reminds me of um you know a, instead of taking the, the pen and the paper like a paul combs 
Yeah. You're able to do that just through graphic design and, and, yep. you know, it's a completely different type of, yep. it, I, I'd be more along the lines of what you're doing than Paul Combs, but they both have a message. Absolutely. There, there, there's, there's a handful of, of artists out there. Like Paul Coombs is one of them. He does some amazing, amazing stuff. There's an artist, uh, firefighter, uh, medic artist up in Western Ontario called uh, Daniel Sundell. Dan Sundell. He does some incredible stuff. And, and, and he's inspired me with some of his stuff. But it, it's one of those, you know what, you want to separate your artwork from somebody else's artwork and my style is different from his but yeah we all use our artwork to not only help ourselves heal but to get messages out to people so yeah my my coloring evolved into artwork you know i did things like journaling you know that that my journaling really turned out to be more just documenting what i did for the day as opposed to really writing about feelings and emotions and thoughts but my journaling really evolved into actual writing and i've written articles that have, have been published on a handful of of social media mental health platforms so I've, I've written a couple of uh, articles that were published in a couple of books and and you know what i'm i'm in the process of writing my own book now so i've done that i've done uh you know yoga um gardening um, I've tried essential oils. I've tried every type of grounding technique <laughs> out there. Uh, I've tried equine therapy. I'm, I'm still doing equine therapy. Uh, you know, where you use horses to, to, to help you in your recovery process. So yeah, it, it's been open-minded and, and willing to try anything. And, and I've kept things that have seemed to work and I pitched things that 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 didn't work for me now you've um you know again courage having talking to your wife that first time courage um talking to your therapist and your wife talking to your kids yeah about having suicidal thoughts when did the courage to actually publicly speak about this to talk to the strangers about this when does so, that come into play? That, that, that sort of came in two parts. Um, the first part is about, like I said, the PTSD, anxiety, depression. The second part is about, you know, the, the suicide side of things. The, the talking publicly about, you know, the PTSD, anxiety, and depression, that came really early on in my journey. Um, the way that sort of came about is one of the books that my, my therapist had me read early, early on in my journey was a book called The Roadmap to Resilience. Uh, it's a book that was written primarily for veterans and military, uh, military people sort of coming back and sort of reintegrating into civilian life, uh, but bringing along their mental health challenges like PTSD. And one of the things that stood out in that book was something called altruism, helping others, and how that can actually be therapeutic. And I really bought into that. And, and it, it, it really is incredibly therapeutic, helping others by telling your story. 
it's I, I see it as one of those win-win situations. It absolutely helps me telling my story over and over and over again. It helps others. They're learning from my story. It, it, it's it, it it's a win-win. So that was that was pretty early on, uh, and and eventually being totally public about the suicide part of things that 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 started happening shortly after October where it's like okay time to stop hiding things I, I can't move forward if there's still things holding me back and that's why I thought you know what time to be totally open and public about it with everything with everybody and, and you know what I, I've I thought about it this way you know what I mean I, I hold a senior rank in my department you know what I figured time to show some real leadership maybe you know I'm close to retirement maybe leave the fire service a little better than I found it and, and, and I thought you know what I'm gonna go public with it and, and if me going public with it and, and and having the courage to go public with it helped or cause one firefighter to ask one question about PTSD to learn about it or if it, if it caused just one firefighter to reflect on their own mental health, or if it helped one firefighter who's already battling a mental health challenge to not feel alone, then it's absolutely worth it. The, uh, the, the other thing that, is, that has helped is the depression side of things. One of the problems with depression is when you don't have a purpose, that's when you, you can spiral down into those dark places and those dark thoughts and, you know, you, 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 you can spiral down to areas where I was like in June. So, you know what, when that purpose, your, your first responder purpose is taken away from you because you're off work, you know, battling a mental health challenge or an occupational, occupational stress injury like PTSD, you sort of lose your purpose. So educating others, advocating for others, whether it's giving talks and presentations about my journey like I'm doing right now, whether it's through my writings or through artwork or through peer support work that I'm doing, it gives me a purpose. So yeah, that, that's where you know PTSD, anxiety, and depression has sort of led me. Uh, it hasn't been easy. Like I, I don't, I don't want, I don't want your listeners to think that. Oh, okay, he's he's better. No, you know what? I still have, I have good days. I still have bad days. I have some really bad days. You know what? I've still got some symptoms. You know, like a lot of my symptoms have have gotten a lot better. You know, like I'm I'm not having nightmares as often as I used to. Um, the intrusive dreams that I have you know, they're getting a lot less. My sleep's getting better. You know what? I still have, I still get, you know, the odd triggered flashback. I still get intrusive memories coming up. You know, the, 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 the depression side of things still there every so often. I still get, you know, the monkey brain, the ruminating thoughts, but it's a hell of a lot better than where I was. So it, sure. it is, it is getting better. So you spent, I mean, nearly 30 years 
helping the citizens out. That was your focus. That was your purpose. Yep. And at some point, and I kind of feel like I'm at the beginning of this transition as well. At some point, I went away. Well, no, I still do that, but my concentration was more on my fellow brothers and sisters. And that is exactly what you're doing now. That is your purpose. It's it's just changed. Absolutely. Um, it's evolved, you know if you what? will. We're, we're, we're first responders. We always think about others. Absolutely always. And, and when you're riding the trucks, you're always thinking about Joe Public and, you know, the, the people we serve. It's always about them. It's never about us, right? And you know what? That, that has its pros and cons. <laughs> uh, I'll get into that in a moment. But you're always thinking about others. It's always about others. And that's not an easy thing to turn off. When you've been doing as long as you have or as long as I have, that's not something that you just turn off like a light switch. You know what? It's something that I am quite certain will go to my grave with me, that always worrying about others. Um, and, and when you're in a position like me where you're off work and you really can't work, be you know, look after Joe Public and all that, you need to look at who you're going to look after next. Well, you look after your brothers and sisters. And I do that. That's part of my purpose. Now, there is a challenge <laughs> in um, thinking about others always. It makes it so much harder to focus on yourself when you need to, to start your healing journey. <laughs> right? it, it, it's, it's hard. A lot of my, uh, my journey, there's a lot of painful parts where you have to look inside and really reflect on who you really are and, and your core beliefs and your, your judgments and your cognitive distortions and all those things that people don't really understand are part of PTSD. And there's a lot of painful inner reflection. That's hard to do when, you know what, you're more focused on thinking about others. It's part of the healing journey. Doing that, <clears throat> making yourself a priority and do that self-care. Yeah, absolutely. That's what you're alluding to. Exactly. It, it, it's not easy. <laughs> oh. it, 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 it's one of the things that is so, so vital. I mean, I mean, we say about it all the time in the fire service, right? Yeah, about, you know, when you can't, you can't, help the citizens you know if you become the victim you know we talk about that all the time search and rescue you know you got to make sure that you don't become part of the problem right so we talk about that it, it's and talking about it life, and, and but actually doing it is two separate yeah, things absolutely because i i feel exactly how you are just being selfish like yep everybody go comes before me yep and and yeah there's i can absolutely there's some you know, negative I, things because of that I, I i tell people you know as a as a firefighter i've always been willing to to risk my life in situations that are marginally in my favor for something bigger than me that's like you know what you you show me a, a firefighter who's not willing to do that they don't exist but because of that, it's so hard to 
put that aside and actually focus on yourself. It, it, it seems unnatural. <laughs> you have to though. And, and, and to be honest with you, that, that was a challenge at the beginning, right? The, the, you know, the, the, the challenge with, you know, ego getting in the way, you know, I've crawled through burning buildings. You know, I've danced with the devil. I've got to do things that only a select group in society get to do. I sure as hell can handle whatever this PTSD and depression thing is. Yeah, until you can't. <laughs> right? You know, there, there's there's that ego gets in the way. It, it's, you know, you, you, you think about the first responders. We are the problem solvers of society. And yet, when we're the problem we have a hard time trying to fix ourselves because we're worried about everybody else. It, and we're stubborn. It, <laughs> absolutely. We're, we're just damn stubborn. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so it, that, that's a, a challenge to get over, to be able to move forward in your healing journey. But you have to do it. It's not easy. You have to. You got to put aside your ego. You got to realize that it's not selfish when you look after yourself and you know what you have to be able to we say it all the time you have to be able to look after yourself before you can look after anybody else it's very true so yeah. let me ask you this let's kind of close it down here you talked about writing a book yep. you know, what's kind of next on rob's journey um making it to retirement in a better mental state than I was last year and where I am now. Uh, I mean, like, like I say to people, I'm not where I want to be. I'm not where I need to be, but I'm sure as hell glad I'm not where I was. So what's next for me? I'm going to continue on with my writing, my artwork. I'm going to continue on trying to educate and advocate for first responders for firefighters, um, I'm going to keep on doing my artwork. I'm going to keep on doing peer support work. Uh, I'm going to keep on working on my book. <laughs> um, and like I said, my book, uh, it's got a working title that I'm kind of proud of. It's called Not a Life Sentence, The Gift of PTSD, which sounds kind of strange to somebody. How can PTSD be a gift? I see it as a gift. Um, I see it as a gift because of what it's forcing me to do. Um, what I tell people, a lot of people, and, and what I've read elsewhere from some mental health professionals is that trauma changes you permanently. So if, if it changes you permanently, if you, live by that philosophy that means you can't go back and i find a lot of people who who battle ptsd and, and anxiety and depression they try to get back to where they were before ptsd was in their life and, and i guess my philosophy i've bought into that you know trauma changes you permanently if you can't go back you only have two choices stay where you are and continue to suffer or perhaps really battle and move forward and perhaps recreate who you are into a better person than you were before. And that's what I'm trying to do. So that's why I see PTSD as a, 
is a gift. Yeah, it sucks having it. <laughs> I wouldn't wish it on anybody. I really wouldn't. But you know what? If you get in the right mindset, you can look at it as, as, a, as a gift because it really does force you to take a hard look at who you are and it gives you, it forces you, uh, and it gives you the opportunity to recreate some, recreate yourself and reinvent yourself into somebody who you really want to be and who you actually really like. <laughs> and although I'm not where I, like I said, although I'm not where I want to be right now or where I need to be, you know what? I can tell you I'm a better person now than I was 10 years ago. I'm a better person now than I was two years ago. So yes, it's, it's giving me the opportunity to recreate myself, reinvent myself. I think it says it some, somewhere on your website where it says you're a work in progress, just like yep. your website. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> which, is, which is perfect. You know what? It really is. <laughs> Will you take a minute and actually describe your website? Let everybody know uh, where to check that out at. Because there's there's a lot of stuff on here. A lot of great sure. stuff. So my website is called, it's the website domain name or URL is called lethen.ca. So it's spelled L-E-A-T-H-E-N.ca. Or if you want, I can spell it phonetically for us first responders. <laughs> So uh, lethan.ca, and on there, you're, you're, there's a, it's broken in a couple of, you know, four or five different sections. I've got a little bit of a, you know, about who I am and a little bit about, you know, you know, my, my, my job experience. Uh, I've got a section with my, I call it my mental health resume. So things I've, I've done as part of my mental health journey, conferences I've been to, courses that I've taken, podcasts. <laughs> I saw you already had this on there. Yeah, it's it's except for the link to it, right? You, to the final copy of it. You're no mess around. You're you're aggressive. So, um, so it, it's about you know my mental health resume. I, I've I've had a few quotes uh, dealing with first responders and mental health through my my journey that I think are really important to get out. Um, I've got uh, a section on on my writings. You know, with links to to the websites that have published them, or or links to you know where the books are. You know, talking about you know the books that my art, some of my stuff have been published in. Got a link to my artwork. Um, uh, I've got a link to some of the different uh, books and smartphone apps that I've used as part of my journey that have helped me, and uh, like contact information. But uh, yeah, you know what. Some of the quotes, some of the quotes may be pro problematic for some people, but you know what? Unfortunately, they're 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 bang on. You know, like one of the quotes I talk about would be problematic for a lot of organization leaders. You know, and, and things like you know, I, I've said it all the time. You know, I mean, we hear it all the time in the fire service. You know, you talk to somebody, it's like, ah, you know what? You're not alone. You know, we're here for you. Just reach out. Well, the reality is some first responders don't reach out. What do you do then? You know, so, and that's why, you know, I'm, I'm vocal about that. Instead of saying we're here for you, you're not alone. 
just reach out. We're first responders. Maybe we should get the fuck off our ass and go in and make the rescue and proactively go in and try to help people before it's too late, before they become a statistic. You know, I, I, I make a comment about lived experience makes one an expert. You know what? I have no disrespect for the highly educated people with lots of letters after their name. Absolutely. They have a part to play in everybody's mental health journey. But you know what? There's something to be said for somebody who's a firefighter riding on the trucks, experiencing the bad shit, dealing with mental health issues and talking about it. There's something about lived experience that makes them an expert. You know what? There, there's, you know, I'm, I'm tired of, of organizations talking about all the things that they do for their mental health of their employees, you know, and yet, you know, a lot of that, I'm trying to be polite in how I say this, <laughs> a lot of that is just lip service. You know, a, a lot of organizations say, well, you know what, we provided an a employee assistance program for, our, for our, our, our employees. Well, yeah, you know what? I wouldn't talk about some of the shit I've had to talk with my therapist about to any counselor from an EAP program. They're, they're not trauma trained. They're, you know what, if I'm having problems with my kids, yeah, I'll go talk to a counselor at EAP. You know, if I'm having, you know, problems with, with, you know, financial planning and things like that, absolutely. But you know what, if I'm having problems that are caused because of PTSD, I'm not going to an EAP counselor. I'm going to a trauma trained therapist who has experience with it. So, you know, yeah, it bothers me when, when a lot of the, uh, the organizations really don't proactively do a lot of stuff for mental health. Up our way, we, we literally yesterday, we had an Ottawa police officer die by suicide. And, and what are the police organizations doing about it? Lots of lip service, lots of expert panels with lots of experts with lots of letters after the name, but you know what? Nothing really is changing, right? We, 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 I think it was, I think it was Albert Einstein who made the comment about the definition of, of stupidity is doing the same thing over and over and over, expecting a different outcome. That's exactly what organizations are doing with first responder suicides. You know what? How's that working for them? It's not. So, yeah, you know, I've got some quotes that would, I'm sure, piss off some fire chiefs and deputy chiefs. You know, I, I talk about sanctuary trauma, which uh, a lot of organizations won't even acknowledge exists because it would then, you know, if they acknowledge it exists, they'd have to accept some part of responsibility for this, you know, for the mental health of their, their employees. You know, I, I mean, I'll give you a good example of sanctuary trauma. Uh, at the point when I was, it was last, I guess last October, November, um, I'd been off what, nine months? Still hadn't heard, hadn't even been contacted by the fire chief. We're a small department. I know the fire chief. I know he knows me. We've had debates, <laughs> heated debates. It's like I said, we know we have, everybody knows everybody. I know he knows me. I've been off, what, nine months. 
one of the firefighters got hurt at a fire, uh, went, went to the hospital, and that fire chief, along with all the, the senior officers, visited him the very same day in the hospital. And yet, I've been off work nine months at that time, hadn't heard a word from the fire chief. I mean, what does that say? Well, first of all, it makes me feel like shit that, you know what? It makes me feel like a broken toy and forgotten. But you know what? The message it's sent, physical injuries are more important than psychological injuries. It's a bad message. And in my department, in it, looking back from November for a two-year period before that, we had only sent, I guess, two firefighters to the hospital for physical injuries at calls. And in that same period of time, we've had five people off dealing with PTSD. We've had one, almost two suicides. Where is the problem? <laughs> Where should the focus be? Right? As organizations, we're really good at looking after the physical health and safety of, of our firefighters. Right? We, we have policies and procedures and state-of-the-art equipment to look after the, you know, the, the physical side of things and to look after people's safety, but we're nowhere near where we should be with looking after our you know, first responders' mental health. In many organizations, it's almost like it's an afterthought. That's where people like you kind of come into play. Because it's it should ideally, it should come from the top down. Yeah, absolutely. And I've, and I've talked to a few chiefs. Um, I remember last year being in Calgary and opening for not opening. I had I had to follow Chief Peg from Toronto. Matt Peg, I yes. know him personally. <laughs> so <laughs> I had to follow his story, which is not something. <laughs> it, I was in a crappy position, but when <laughs> you have somebody like that, yeah who is, is preaching from the top down. That's ideally, that's what you want. Absolutely. Who actually believes in it and is, you know, doing it himself. But that's not the case for everywhere, like in your department. So you need people nope. like you waving that flag. Uh, absolutely. You know what? I, how do I, and this will, this will piss off some senior officers guaranteed, but you know what? Fire chiefs nowadays really aren't, leaders they're managers and administrators there's a handful in my area there's a handful of leaders who, I, who fire chiefs who i honestly believe are leaders who inspire people who who inspire you to want to adopt their vision and fire chief of toronto matt peg is one of them i, I see him as, as an actual fire service leader not just a budget administrator and manager. And, and so, yeah, I, I wish that a lot of the changes around first responder mental health would actually come from the top. Reality is, in a lot of cases, that push is coming from the bottom up, from the front lines up. I'm happy there is at least a push. Yeah. I'll say that much because <clears throat> you started before me i've still been on a pretty good while we couldn't have this discussion up until i mean just really a couple of years ago yeah i mean that's it just we'd be laughing laughing stock you know absolutely shamed yeah. away suck it up yep. buttercup you know deal with it 
and you, you know what? That is the that is the one area that I think we really are missing out on. The, the, the people that are coming into the fire service now, although we like to call them, you know, millennials and generation X and generation y, whatever they are, you know what? My gut feeling is they're pretty open-minded when it comes to mental health and looking after mental health. You know what? We, we, the message can get into them so much easier. It's the old guys like me and not so much you, you're not as old as me, but it's the older guys who started out in that suck it up buttercup culture. It's the old guys that we seem to be missing out on. I look at my department and, and the five of us who were off and some of us are still off battling PTSD, we're all in the like the 25 and up years of service. It's not the, the people coming in. So even in my own department, the push from above to the senior, to the platoon chiefs and the active platoon chiefs was, yeah, you know what? You guys are the senior members of the department. You need to look after the captains below you and their firefighters and everybody else. But nowhere does they say, you know, who's looking after the older guys at the top who've been there the longest, who came in the, the you know, the fire service is a suck it up buttercup culture. And I talked to you to you about this the first time that, that we had a phone conversation. Um, and I, I referenced, I said, you know, stacking it on the pile. We yep. have we have that time where we've we've had the ability to just stack it up, as my buddy Travis yep. House always talked about that. And you had you basically said the same thing in a different way, and you actually did an an artwork about that. Which which one? Uh, I've done a lot of artwork. Well, no, the, the Jenga. Oh, the firefighter Jenga. Yeah, yes. the uh, that was the very first piece of art I did, and uh, for uh, for your 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 listeners, hopefully everybody knows what a Jenga game is like. You know, it's those that game with you have wooden blocks and you sort of build tower and you take a lower block and you put it on top and and you hope that the tower of blocks doesn't all come crumbling down. You, you know what? That's it. I did that piece of artwork and I called it firefighter Jenga because that's exactly what my life felt like. The, you know, just before I reached out for help back in February, it felt like everything was going to come crumbling down. And, and the reality is the longer you're on, the taller that tower of blocks is. And, and it, in that particular piece of artwork, each block had something written on it, you know, whether it's, you know, VSA or SISM or suicide or structure fire, or line of duty death, or, you know, you know, close call or extra kick, all those little things, all those calls fill up our cup or, you know, build that tower that much taller and that much more precarious and that much closer to crumbling down Whereas the new people coming in, their tower of blocks is so much smaller. Their cup only has a few drops of water in it as opposed to overflowing. So we just, in my humble opinion, yeah, we need to focus on mental health, absolutely. We need to, to teach resilience skills and or teach resiliency and, and coping strategies to the people coming into the fire service absolutely but we've got to make sure we don't forget about 
the older people like you, like me, the ones whose cups are close to overfilling or have already overflowed or the people whose Jenga tower is so much taller than, yeah, we, we, we need to do it. I, I honestly think we're missing out. When I say we, I'm talking about fire service collectively. I really think we're missing out on a portion of our members when it comes to mental health. And I'm trying, hopefully trying to change that. It's the tenured guys and gals. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I, I see that too. Um, we're at least able to talk about this now in our recruit class. Yeah. And I believe they will be better off when they get that time in, when they notice something's yep. going on, they'll get that help, but you're still dealt with the, um, just veteran firefighters and paramedics that uh, that still have that tall tower, yeah, that, that large stack, and or, uh, or they have the, may the... may reach out, may not. It's it's up to that. Yep. I think a lot of times the department or the union to help yep. break down that wall and make Absolutely. it to where it's comfortable. And sometimes, unfortunately, something tragic needs to happen a lot of times before that yep. happens. Absolutely, you know what. I, 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 it's really sucks, but the reality is when you have a, a firefighter member in your department die by suicide, it's a wake up call and it changes you and it changes your department. It does. I mean, you, you know what, there, there's, there's only two things that I think really make or force radical change in a department. One, one is a line of duty death, and one is a death of a member by suicide. Those two things, I think, radically make change, right? Because those things are painful and they make you look inwards and they make you question. So ideally you would be proactive and you wouldn't have to have any of those. Uh, but unfortunately that yeah. doesn't seem like that's the case. It's getting better. Yep. And the next generation will be better, but yeah, it's just not quite there yet. No. Like I said, we're, we're dealing with, with respect to the, the tenured guys, the guys and girls who have been on for a long time. You know what? You're also dealing with, 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 older ways of thinking you know what there there's guys and girls who who are older and and denial is a big thing you know i'm not weak you know i don't have ptsd i don't yeah uh you know just you know they have those those thoughts and those beliefs They're, that's the thing we got to change I look at, at, I think statistically, you're looking at anywhere from 30 to 35% of, of firefighters will be diagnosed with an occupational stress injury like PTSD. I think, just my humble opinion, that the numbers are actually higher, just they're not diagnosed. And, and the funny thing is, now that I know, now that I understand, I have a better understanding and I have knowledge because you know I'm learning, trying to learn as much as I can. 
I can see symptoms in a lot of people in my department that haven't even been diagnosed. It's like, yeah, you've got some, you know, like the anger that you have all the time. Don't mean to ruin you, burst your bubble, but I'm trying to tell you that's a symptom. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah, one of my old lieutenants said this, and I, I absolutely believe it. And I know I've said it before on a show. Nobody leaves this job unscathed. Nobody. Nobody. And and, and but and the on the other side of it as well, nobody comes into the fire service as a blank slate. We all come in with baggage from our previous life. And that baggage and those you know problems from earlier life have an impact on how susceptible you are to PTSD. Mm-hmm. There's a study that was done that talked about adverse childhood experiences. And the more adverse childhood experiences that a person has, the more susceptible they are to things like addictions, substance abuse, uh, depression, PTSD. You know what? So, yeah, nobody comes into the fire service as a blank slate, and nobody leaves the fire service not being changed. I mean, I, I had one of my one of my quotes that addresses that. I've said, you know what? You can't walk through water and not get wet. You can't walk through a sewer and not come out smelling like shit. And you can't go through a career as a first responder, doing the things that we do, seeing the things that we see, hearing the things that we hear, experiencing the things that we experience and not be affected in some way. You, you can't. That, that, that's, I guess it's just another way of saying what your lieutenant said to you. And you know what, the people, the members who don't understand that or who deny that are gonna have problems. I think the ones who openly accept that and believe that are the ones who are more likely to invest what they need to invest in to look after their mental health. Absolutely. So I, I think that's that's pretty much the end of the episode there. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's a good way to go out. Um, yeah. Well, so, you know what? Go ahead. Thank you. Thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to to uh, to tell my story, to try to get the message out. Uh, I hope that uh, you know, with with your podcast and the other podcasts you've done, and and this one, and you know, and efforts like mine and yours and what others are doing, I hope we can get the message out to people that you know what we need to be open. The more open we are about it, the more we normalize the conversation about mental health, the better we are at chipping away at that stigma. And if we can do that, hopefully we can help some firefighter or first responder who may have been on the way to becoming another statistic, maybe we can get through to them and help them. Absolutely. That is, that is the entire hope of this. Absolutely. So if you don't mind, I know you've said it once already, go yep. over your website again and, and where to contact you on there. Sure. So my website is lethan.ca. So spelled L E A. T-H-E-N dot C-A. 
I've got contact info on there, my, my articles, my writings, my artwork, uh, some quotes. Um, yeah, it's my, my, my face on the internet for, for my efforts to try to make a change and help. Well, you are, you are doing absolutely great. And, so and keep and, that up and you know what, like I said, it, it's, uh, you know what, can't do it myself. It's a team effort. And it's going to take people like you, people like me, people like others, like that, that are willing to openly talk about it. That's, you know, I, I've always said that, uh, uh, PTSD recovery, you can't do it yourself. And it doesn't fix itself. It's a team sport. You need people on your team to help you. And the same goes with chipping away at stigma. One person isn't going to do it. It takes a team to, to chip away at it. And, and, and you're one of them. And, and you know, I, I, again, thank you for the opportunity to, to come chat today. I've enjoyed myself. And, and like and I said, thank I, you. I, thank I you for putting yourself out there, you know, and continuing to do this. I know, I know it's not easy. So I, I do no. truly appreciate this. Um, like I said, I, I just hope that, you know what, we get through to at least one person, then it's, it's all worthwhile. Exactly. All right. Well, he's Rob and I'm Jim and we're out of time. So thank you, sir. And thank uh, you, Jim. I'll talk to you listeners next week. <laughs>